Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Today's episode is about stillbirth, which is just a really rough subject to talk about. But I really wanted to bring you this story because the woman in it makes a bunch of just incredible choices that have made me completely rethink the way I think about death. Stillbirth is one of those topics we don't really talk about, you know, that that we don't even know how to talk about. But the thing is, it happens. You know, I, I know people who have gone through it. Three people, in fact, which feels like a lot. And I know there are many more of you out there. You know, you leave comments on our blog and on our Facebook group. And you tell me that you need your stories told. And, and you talk about how you are parents, too. Even those of you who don't have any living children. As I was putting this story together, um, I was trying to get a sense of just how common stillbirth is. And it turns out to be a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Because um, every country defines stillbirth differently. You know, like how old was the baby when it died? Um, was the pregnancy intentionally terminated? But um, just to give you a sense, here are some numbers I dug up from the medical journal The Lancet. In 2011, The Lancet did a big series on stillbirth. Um, We have a link to it at longestshortesttime.com. So um, The Lancet did this big series, and in it, they defined stillbirth as a third trimester death. So um, that's 28 weeks gestation and later. And The Lancet, um, in that series, estimated nearly 3 million stillbirths worldwide each year. And of those, almost all of them happen in low to middle income countries, and often those stillbirths happen during childbirth. And then um, The Lancet found in high resource countries like the United States, roughly one in every 300 births is a stillbirth. And a lot of the time, because there is very little research done on stillbirth, the cause of death is a mystery. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hilary Frank. Today on the show, poet Arielle Greenberg. My name is Arielle Greenberg, and I'll be talking about my son, Day. Day was a stillborn baby. He died at 31 weeks. Arielle still does not know why. And although Day died, today we're going to be focusing on his birth and the very unusual circumstances surrounding his birth. There are a lot of unusual things that happen in this story, and one of those things is a decision Ariel made to give birth to Day naturally at home. Today's episode wraps up our April series on natural birth, um, but to be clear, the fact that Day died and the fact that he was born at home are completely unrelated. Day died long before Ariel even went into labor. Before we get to why Ariel had Day at home, it's important to know why she was so committed to natural birth in the first place. It all started back when she was pregnant with her first baby, her daughter, Willa. 
I knew I didn't want drugs or I was pretty sure I didn't want drugs. And I knew that, um, if a person came into my space who had an energy that I really didn't like, that I would probably shut down. And I knew that if I was going to do labor unmedicated, that I needed to have people around me that I wanted to have around me. Um, the more research I did, the more I realized that in fact, having all of those things was going to be nearly impossible in a hospital setting, mostly because, you know, just they, doctors and nurses have to be on shift. And so if your birth goes longer than a few hours, you're probably going to get people in there that you, you know, in your room that you never knew you were going to get. Um, so then I thought my next best option was um, to try for a birthing center, but in fact, birthing centers were illegal in the state of Illinois at the time. That's changed since. But um, Were you living in Chicago? Yeah, we were living just outside Chicago in Evanston. Yeah, but in the entire state of Illinois, they were, they were illegal. <laughs> so then I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, and I again, I was just doing all this research and reading all these books, and I realized that the best shot I had at having a birth without drugs where I felt supported and like I had control over whose energy was around me and where my baby wasn't going to get taken away from me was to have a home birth. And I'd never thought about having a home birth. I didn't know anybody who'd had a home birth, but the more I read about it, the more it made sense to me, just kind of common sense. And so that in itself was hard because Illinois is the home of the American Medical Association, and for that and other reasons, um, it's a pretty hostile place towards midwives, and it was also illegal for certified professional midwives to practice in the state of Illinois. So here we need to point out there are different kinds of midwives, like five different kinds, but if you're going to have a home birth, the kind you really want is a certified professional midwife. That means you're trained in births that happen at home um, and how to deal with problems that can arise at home um, and also how to recognize when a woman needs to be transferred to the hospital. But in Illinois, that kind of midwife can be put in jail just for practicing, even when nothing has gone wrong. If you want a home birth in Illinois, the legal way to do it is to hire a different kind of midwife, um, one that is trained in hospital birth, not home birth. Ariel was not comfortable with that, so she hired a certified professional midwife, um, you know, one of those ones trained in home birth, who was practicing illegally. And just to be clear for listeners, mm -hmm. um, if you had been labeled at high risk for, for your health or for the baby's health, would you have had the baby in a hospital? Sure. I mean, home birth midwives don't, if somebody's high risk, they, they risk you out and they transfer your care over to a, a doctor um, who can take care of you in a hospital. You know, 99% of those kinds of things um, can be seen well in advance of when a woman's going to go into labor. So you would just have your care transferred over at that time. And I mean, I think there's definitely a reason why hospitals are there and why obstetricians are there and Obstetricians are surgeons. It's a surgical practice. They are trained in surgery. I'm really glad because sometimes people need surgery. Um, so I wanted somebody trained to attend a natural, unmedicalized, non-surgical birth because that's what I wanted to have. Um, and if I'd had to have had the other, then I would have had to have had the other. But um, otherwise, I didn't want that. Ariel got to have the kind of birth she wanted at home in a tub and everything turned out fine. She was healthy. Her daughter was healthy. But it was tough. It lasted an astounding five days. 
but I felt like superhuman strong. I mean, I was exhausted, but I was also like, I rock, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience and it absolutely convinced me that home birth had been the right decision. I think you can hear there, um, Ariel loved childbirth, but um, she decided she wasn't going to have any more babies. Then um, she got pregnant by accident. You know, we uh, went to Planned Parenthood, actually, and had like a consultation to talk about terminating. And the counselor, you know, talked to us about the options and like we could have done this kind of surgical procedure or a pill, I guess. We looked at each other afterwards and we were like, we went through so many hoops to have this uninterventive birth with our daughter like to do all this in like intense medical intervention to terminate this pregnancy just seems really far down a path that we, you know, have worked very hard not to go down. And then we went to a therapist that my husband had been seeing and, um, and she was like, well, I've heard you say that this is very inconvenient and it's not what you planned, but I haven't heard either of you say you don't want this baby can you say you don't want this baby? And we were like, no, we can't really say that. So then we decided to go forward. The problem was um, certified professional midwifery was still illegal in Illinois. And since Ariel's last pregnancy, her midwife had left the state, along with pretty much all of the other qualified home birth midwives. Ariel considered going down to the farm in Tennessee where Ina Mae Gaskin practices. Ina Mae Gaskin, if you don't know, is the leader of the modern natural birth movement, and we featured her in our last episode. So Ariel considered going there, um, but then as she researched home birth friendly states, she settled on Maine. She and her husband had a lot of history there. They used to visit a lot when they were dating, and it's where they got married. So we planned to have a, um, like birth vacation, like a destination birth, like <laughs> people have destination weddings. So we were going to have a destination birth. Ariel recognizes how strange this must sound to most people, you know, that she decided to have her baby halfway across the country from where she was living, that she rented a house there for the sole purpose of giving birth in it that she traveled up and down the main coast, interviewing midwives, looking for the right fit. But for her, that work was all worth it to have the kind of birth experience she'd had before, you know, one that would have the potential to make her feel superhuman strong. And she was more convinced than ever that the hospital would make her feel the opposite. So Ariel picks some midwives in Maine, has a couple prenatal visits with them, but gets most of her checkups with a midwife near her home in Illinois. And, you know, everything seems great. The baby is active. Ariel is healthy. The plan is, at 34 weeks, her family would fly to Maine and wait for the baby. But then, at 31 weeks, a few weeks before the big move, Ariel is standing in front of a graduate poetry seminar teaching. And I had my hand on my belly. And one of my students said, your hand's on your belly. Do you have your hand there? Because is the baby kicking right now? And I was like, oh, no. You know, like pregnant women just put their hands on their bellies all the time. Um, but when the student said that, I realized that, like, no, in fact, I wasn't feeling kicking at the moment. And 
I hadn't really paid attention to whether or not I felt movement all day, but I can remember feeling movement, but I was so busy and it was like such a busy day that I felt like, okay, well, you know, I just haven't been paying attention. But then that night I actually had, um, dinner with my Dean scheduled at a restaurant a few blocks away from work. And I walked to the restaurant and I noticed that like, it was actually pretty easy for me to walk quickly. I was running late. Um, which at that point in my pregnancy, I was 31 weeks pregnant was, had, had not been so easy lately, um, to walk quickly in the Chicago cold in the winter. Um, but it felt like easier. And then, um, I went and had dinner and I had like this big piece of salmon. And at the time I didn't eat, um, other meat, but I was eating fish. And whenever I had animal protein, like if I had eggs or fish, my body was just like, woohoo. And, you know, I'd really feel it. And the baby would start moving a lot more and stuff. And I ate this like big piece of salmon and just felt nothing. And then I got home and my husband was like, oh, I baked brownies. Do you want some brownies? And, you know, at this time, again, like I was, I was ravenous all the time. And I was like, eh, I don't need brownies. And I was like, well, that's weird. So then I just decided to start paying attention the next day. I was like, I'm going to just pay attention all day to whether or not I feel movement. I'm sure I'm feeling it. I'm just not paying attention. She paid attention that whole day. Still no movement. I went to bed that night and I had a series of three dreams. And in each dream, basically, I was told that the baby was dead. In one dream... I, we went to a clinic that was like Planned Parenthood, although, you know, it wasn't. Um, and I was just like waiting in the waiting room to be seen. And they like wouldn't call me in and wouldn't call me in. And finally they said, um, okay, like it's your turn and you can get into this little like glass pod and we'll kind of ferry you off, you know, to the location. But then when they said that, I was like, oh, like that, they're telling me what you do if you're going to have an abortion. And I was like, you know, I was like started screaming and woke myself up screaming. I was like, no, that's not what I'm here for. No, no. And then I was crying and I like calmed myself down and went back to sleep. And I dreamt that I was back in the same clinic. And this time I finally got in to see, you know, a nurse or whatever. And she listened with a stethoscope or a fetal scope. And she said, "Um, I'm so sorry. There's just an orange in there or something like that. And I woke up and I was like, oh, he's dead. You knew. I knew. And at this point, um, you know, we knew he was a boy. We had started packing for a trip to Maine. We were supposed to leave in two or three weeks from then, maybe two weeks. Um, I bought him little matching winter pajamas for, you know, I bought some for his sister who was two snowflake print long johns, you know, for my daughter and a little like zip up onesie in the same print for my son. And I like folded up all these little baby clothes and started putting them away. And, um, my daughter was born in May, which is a beautiful time to have a baby. Um, you know, everything was coming alive in the world at the time when she was born. But I had these wonderful visions of having a baby in early February in Maine and just like bundling up under the covers and nursing and sleeping, <laughs> you know, until the thaw 
Kind of. And so I'd had all these cozy things picked out and getting ready to pack. And um, we'd chosen a name for him. We'd chosen the name Day. Um, Why Day? Um, for many reasons, but it was a family name in my husband's father's family. Um, I'm Jewish and my husband's uh, not. It was very important to us that we pick names that didn't alienate either of our families that weren't like too Jewish or too not Jewish, which eliminates like 90% of names in America. Um, And uh, we wanted something that felt like American. And and so, you know, after a lot of searching and thinking about it, we chose Day, Um, which turned out to be kind of amazing for a number of reasons. We'll get to all the reasons that Day's name was amazing and even poetic. But first, back to the story. Ariel wakes up, convinced the baby has died. So we uh, went into the doctor's office where we had been seeing the midwife. The midwife herself was at a birth. She couldn't be there. Um, Nobody was able to just, nobody was brave enough to just tell us our baby had died. People um, shoved us off from one, you know, like this woman tried to listen to us with a, little, um, electronic fetal monitor. And it was just like making this alarming beeping sound that was like the flat lining, you know, like beep, beep, <laughs> like that's not a heartbeat. And we could see like, it's a, it's a, it's an EK, it's a, whatever. It's like, um, you can see the monitor and you can see that there's nothing happening. Um, and she was like, um, I think it ran out of paper. Let me go get somebody else. So then they, they put us in a different room and they gave us to an ultrasound technician who turned on the machine and you could just instantly see like there is a perfectly still baby with no heartbeat. Um, and at this point I was like wailing, you know, I was just like tears running down my face and just a mess. Um, and the woman finally said, um, I'm sorry, there's no cardiac activity. And she left. So then the doctor came in and this is this OB who, you know, my, my midwife was, um, attached to her practice was attached to, and he had never met us before. And he just came in and he looked at us and he said, well, this sucks. (laughs) Um, and you know, like, again, like I'm like crying and screaming and like, um, and I did speak to my, the midwife in Evanston when she got out of her birth and she said, listen, I know the kind of birth you want and I will do my best. Like I will make the room dark. I will not let other people in, you know, we will try to have it be quiet, but I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be a hospital birth and it's not going to be what you want. And, you know, that's the best I can do. And it, which was really good of her to say, you know, I really, I appreciated that. And, um, I think it became pretty much instantly clear to me that at the end of this birth, there was not going to be a baby. So there wasn't going to be anything joyful about it in that way. So really all I had left since I wasn't going to have a baby was the birth. And it's even like hearing you say that word, it's almost like a crazy word for what happened, right? Because a birth implies like someone new is being born. Yeah. Although, I mean, because of my experience with my daughter's birth, I knew that the birth itself is also a huge experience for the mother. Uh-huh. 
Um, you know, and that can be a hugely traumatic, horrible experience or a hugely empowering, wonderful experience or just a fine experience or whatever, but it's an experience. And that was the only thing I had left. And I, this had the potential to be a really shattering experience, but that because of the care I'd received during my home birth, And the contrast to that, to the kind of care I knew most women received in hospitals and the kind of care I had even received in, you know, these medical settings, that it was also my best chance to feel like I was going to emerge from this experience whole and intact and not completely broken. Ariel makes a decision here that most people would probably not make, but it is a decision that she sees as her only path to not being completely broken. So we decided to fly to Maine. Um, and luckily the house that we'd rented was available. It was a few couple weeks earlier. There was a snowstorm coming in Chicago. There was a snowstorm coming in Maine. And we like literally flew in between two snowstorms. Um, my midwives told me after that I committed a felony by transporting a dead person across state lines without a license um, <laughs> because it was inside me. <laughs> um, this very weird thing happened where, you know, I was very pregnant. I was 31 weeks pregnant and I had been having all these people were commenting on it all the time in public, you know, as people do like, Oh, what are you having? And what do you do? And blah, blah, blah. And from the time he died, it was like, it was, I was, my pregnancy was invisible. I looked just as pregnant, but like nobody commented on it. And we flew, you know, right around the holidays, like December 1st or something from, from, Chicago to Maine. And we were like in two airports and, you know, all these public places and on an airplane and in a rental car place. And nobody said anything. Nobody said like, when's your baby due? Or what are you having? Or anything. Um, I really felt like it was like an invisible cloak from a fairy tale had been thrown over my body. Were you trying to hide it? No. I mean, I couldn't. (laughs) I was really pregnant. And I mean, I'm I'm sure at points I looked really sad in a way that might not be approachable, but in other points, I'm sure I looked fine. Like I had, I had a two and a half year old, like I had to hold my shit together. Uh You know, I wasn't like non-functioning. I was packing and taking care of a two and a half year old and finishing my semester and grading, you know, and like getting things ready to go. Did you tell your daughter what had happened? Yes. At first we told her the baby stopped swimming because she didn't know the word death yet. She didn't know the concept at two and a half. It had never come up. And then once we got to Maine, the midwives, you know, gave us a bunch of really good information about stillborn babies and including how to talk to your other children about it. And they said, you know, you need to use the word dead for something that's dead because you don't want to say sick or broken or any other state that other, you know, that she may be sick. And then she, she's going to think that if she gets sick, she's going to die. You know, like you don't want to be confused with something that it's not. Um, so then we told her what death was because we had to tell her about her brother. And so, yeah. So, so then, so, so you get there and you see the midwives, you see the midwives. Yeah. And did you, because I, you know, I'm not, familiar with with how this works um so if a baby dies inside of you at this stage of pregnancy um 
can you expect natural labor to uh, spontaneously happen always? Um, there's a lot that's not known about it. Um, as far as we know, babies are usually what starts labor, not the mothers. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes that's a problem, but mostly it seems to be triggered or initiated by the babies. So when a baby dies and they're not the initiator, it's not so clear what triggers the beginning of labor. Um, most women who have stillbirths, uh, go into labor naturally within two weeks of the baby dying, as far as we know. But here's the thing. Most women now, if their baby dies, go to the hospital and get induced. So we don't really know. Most women choose to have that baby as soon as possible because they don't want to carry a dead baby. Um, but you decided that you wanted to. Yeah, because I, cause that was the only way I could have a natural childbirth. I mean, yeah. largely because I wanted the birth that I wanted. And um, if I hadn't cared so deeply about having the birth that I wanted, it wouldn't have mattered so much to hold on to that pregnancy. So how long did you wait? Two and a half weeks. So you're carrying your dead child inside of your body yep. for that amount of time. And what is that? time like I mean to me like what it sounds like is your body has like become like this temporary grave it sounds very haunting yeah it is very haunting and it feels haunting and you feel haunted and like we did try to do various sort of natural things to bring labor on um I went to an acupuncturist he tried there's like acupuncture points that you can trigger uh, to try to start, you know, that, that some people do to try to start labor when you have an alive baby. Um, so I had this acupuncture, which was torturous. Like I'd never had acupuncture before and I'm sure not all acupuncture is painful, but it felt incredibly painful to me in part, like not so much the needles. I think just like lying still for this, like not particularly pleasant procedure while in that emotional state, um, was just, and I think also acupuncture does trigger emotional channels as well, right? Like that's sort mm -hmm. of the whole idea. It's a triggering your energy. So I would just lie there with like tears streaming down my face, trying to be still when all I wanted to do was like run and scream, you know? Um, and at one point during the acupuncture treatment, I felt like a hand float up to the surface of my belly. <sighs> you know, or like a limb of some sort, like just a limp limb. Wow. Um, and I think I just was like, we have to stop. You know, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, like some days we would have good days. Like we would go out with my daughter. It was like almost Christmas time. And we were, you know, <laughs> ostensibly on vacation. My husband was like, we are on the saddest vacation ever. You know, I think like... On the one hand, I, I can understand the impulse that I bet a lot of moms have who have been in your position where they would just be like, get this dead baby out of me right, and let me move on with my life. And it's interesting to me, like I understand that you wanted to have this um, experience, but you like chose to go head on into this emotionally challenging experience too. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And 
it's making me think of something that I should have said earlier, which is like so much about my daughter's birth and the experience of home birthing her and waiting out those five days when I also could have chosen to go to the hospital, right? Um, was about choosing to be present. That's really important to me in every aspect of my life. I'm a poet. So like one could argue that if I'm doing my job well as a poet, um, I'm trying to be present to every aspect of life. Um, and you know, it's just who I am as a person too. I am the person who I'm not afraid of hard things. Like I'm afraid of apathy and I'm afraid of numbness and I'm afraid of dishonesty, but I'm not afraid of hard things. Ariel waits it out. The midwives keep trying things to get the labor started. Um, herbs, tinctures, homeopathic remedies. Finally, they send her to a massage therapist. Uh, she was like, your whole body is holding its breath, which felt really true to me. Um, and she was kind of like, you need to go for some long walks. You need to move. You need to breathe. And I, she, her little studio was downtown right above um, a shop where my husband and daughter were like hanging out, you know, shopping while I was in this appointment. And I went down to the shop and went in the door. And the first thing that happened was the woman behind the counter um, said to me, oh, when are you due? <sighs> <laughs> Which hadn't happened for two and a half weeks. Wow. Um, and the next day my contraction started. Ariel likes to say this is a woo-woo part of her story. And it's not the only one. When we were here in, in November for our prenatal, the midwives were like, there's this woman who's just moved to town and she's like training to be a doula, but she doesn't have her certification yet. So she's looking for births to attend for free. And she's really awesome. And she's like an experienced babysitter. And she could also like just kind of be your daughter's labor buddy. So we said, Oh, great. That's awesome. Um, and we, uh, met her and interviewed her. And it was like, when she was talking to us, it was a little odd. We said to each other afterwards, she was amazing and lovely. This woman, Ava, uh, she was very young, you know, in her early twenties. Um, and sometimes the way she talked seemed like maybe she'd had a birth, but she definitely didn't have kids. And we, she never really explained it and we couldn't really make sense of it. And it, and it wasn't like clear. Um, so we were like, great, you know, you, you seem awesome. We'd love to have you at our, at our birth to, to watch our daughter. And then when I called the midwives uh, to tell them that the baby had died and make arrangements, they were like, so listen, we need to tell you something. Ava, um, exactly one year ago, <laughs> on December 1st of the previous year, had a stillborn baby wow. at home, a home birth. Wow. In Wyoming. <laughs> and she had already signed up to be our doula. And this was the first birth she was ever going to attend. Huh. Yeah. So I was like, well, gosh, I totally would understand if she, there's no way in hell she wants to be at our birth for this first birth. And they were like, yeah, we don't know. You should talk to her about it. So I called her and she was like, of course I want to be at your birth. And in the end, I mean, I felt like we hired the best doula in the entire world to be at our birth completely without knowing it. And obviously in a way that we could have never planned because she was one of these other few women who had a home birth stillbirth. Um, and it was the one year anniversary of her daughter's death. 
When Ariel starts getting contractions, she's at the library, and she winds up having to go over to the beanbag chair in the corner where she moans out loud. Her husband drives her home, calls the midwives. Her mother-in-law takes their daughter, Willa, to hang out at an inn. And just like last time, Ariel has a water birth. And Donna, my midwife, said to me, you know, if you want, I can catch him and kind of hold him behind you so that you can take a minute to get ready to see him. Because they'd done a lot of preparing me for the fact that he might not look very good. Um, you know, babies who die, they don't decompose rapidly while in utero because, of course, they're in water and they're not exposed to oxygen. But they do start decomposing and we didn't really know if he was going to have any abnormalities or anything else that were like, you know, maybe the cause of the stillbirth. So I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And um, I remember just like letting out one last final anguished cry of like grief, like just wailing in grief and like pushing him out in the next breath. Ariel says, because there was no resistance from the baby, the whole thing lasted maybe an hour. And when he came out, my husband just lost it. Like, I think suddenly he was like, oh, this is our baby. He lost it in a way he had not lost it up to that point. He was mostly really holding it together, you know, for me and our daughter. Um, and the midwife held the baby under the water for a while because, like, as she said, like, he'll look better under the water. Like, under the water, he looked really peaceful. Like, everybody's kind of limp underwater, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of looked like my husband. Like, I think he would have, uh, I think he would have really taken after my husband's side. And he looked perfectly normal. Like, there were no abnormalities that we could see. Um, and he was a good size and everything else seemed good. Um, and he looked like a baby. <laughs> and, you know, I have to say, like, there is this thing that happens with natural childbirth called oxytocin. <laughs> it's a biological thing. Um, and you feel pretty high after you go through that experience. So we, you know, we took him out of the water, they wrapped him in a blanket and there's pictures of me like sitting on the couch, holding this baby wrapped in a blanket who, you know, while he's wrapped in the blanket, looked pretty much like a sleeping baby. Um, and I'm just beaming and I just thought he was beautiful and everybody there thought he was beautiful and treated him like he was beautiful, which is so much of a part of why I chose what I chose because I don't think that would have happened in the same way in a hospital. Like everybody was like cooing over him and like just loving him up, you know, they weighed him, they took his footprint. Like they just, um, were so sweet with him and my husband made spaghetti <laughs> and we like all sat around in the living room and we're like eating and joking. Like I remember we were laughing, you know, within a couple hours about whatever little thing. Which actually sounds like, sounds like the funerals I've been to. Yes. Yeah, you know? exactly. It was like a really good wake. <laughs> um, and very respectful and quiet. Oh, my daughter, you know, we brought my daughter back from the inn. I had my husband go fetch her, like, almost immediately after the baby was born. And he questioned that a little bit, you know, like, do we really want her here right away? And I was like, absolutely, I do. Like, this is part of her story, and she needs to see it. Like, it is abstract to her, and I think it'll be more real if she sees 
she sees it. And so she came and there's pictures. So there's also pictures of her kind of like glowingly smiling at her baby brother. Mm. Um, and I think she understood death from seeing it in a way that few people do. She really faced it and it wasn't scary. It was like, it was a little still baby wrapped up in a blanket with everybody smiling and being kind. It was, there was like nothing traumatic about it. Um, and then she went up to bed, you know, <laughs> it was brief. Um, and then the funeral, we'd arranged with this fun- local funeral home to come take the baby. Um, we had made arrangements to bury him in a green cemetery that was opening up about an hour north of here. And tell me, what does green cemetery mean? Um, it basically means a piece of land that's left to be a piece of land just the way it is. Um, and you bury the body in a way in which it can biologically decompose. So you can either put the body directly into the ground or you can put the body into the ground in um, a plain, unvarnished, you know, box. So did you, did you, what was the funeral like? Did you bury him in a box of any kind or? We did. We um, wrapped him in a piece of silk that I had received when I um, had taken Buddhist vows of refuge uh, when I was in graduate school. Um, and then a f- actually Ava's husband, who was a carpenter, built a tiny little box um, for him. Um, like the ground was completely frozen. And these people from like a local church came out and dug the ground out for us, excavated for free. And like the, all these church ladies came and they like baked cookies and they just like, we got out of the car and they just hugged us and held us and cried. And you know, none of us had ever met us before. And they, they had like a little sled and we put the little coffin on the sled and we like trudged out in the snow into this pine forest that overlooks a river completely by ourselves and put the little grave in. And my daughter had drawn a picture for him. We put that in and like some friends had sent stones and other things and we put them in and my husband um, shoveled the dirt back in. And I think we read a poem and um, we said goodbye. And that was the like second time that my husband really lost it because he was like, it just feels so wrong to leave him in this like freezing cold hole in the ground in the woods and walk away. Like that's our baby. Um, and like we had... Um, we hadn't known exactly when we were going to bury him. It was like a little hard to arrange and, you know, with the snow and everything. And it just turned out like the day that they could um, manage to make it happen, like the excavators and everything, um, was the winter solstice. So it was the shortest day of the year. And the time that they could do it was at noon. So like we buried him at noon on the shortest day of the year and his name was Day. And it just felt like so incredibly beautiful um how do you think um how do you think your morning was different when he was inside of you versus when he was outside I feel like those two and a half weeks were preparation you know it like looking back it was this incredible gift of time when there was nothing to do but wait for my baby to be born. And so I could do nothing. I was choosing to do nothing but think about him. 
and this experience I was about to have. Um, I mean, of course I grieved afterward, but afterward there was all this other stuff and we had to get back to Illinois and my husband had to go back to work and my daughter had to go back to school. And that's really when I kind of started falling apart. <laughs> like, um, once we were back, it just felt like we were being distracted by our regular lives again. And I felt miserable about it. It just felt so depressing and wrong. It was clear Ariel and her husband could not go back to their old normal. They needed a new normal. So they picked up and moved to Maine, to the same small town where Day was born. The way I tell the story usually is I'm like, okay, so we got married here. We have a marriage certificate from the city hall in Belfast. And then we had a death certificate from the city hall in Belfast. And then we had a birth certificate from the city hall in Belfast. Like, if we don't move to this town, I think the universe is going to, like, conk me on the head. Like, what <laughs> other proof do we need that this is where we're supposed to live? Like, you know, I just felt like every important experience of my life happened here. Ariel now has one more experience to add to that list. In 2009, she gave birth to her second son, Jem, a healthy baby boy caught by the same midwife in Belfast, Maine, who delivered Day. Arielle Greenberg's book, Home Birth, which she co-authored with her friend and fellow poet Rachel Zucker, tells the story of her pregnancy with Day. The bulk of the book was written before Arielle knew that Day had died. After Day died, Arielle and her husband came up with a few ways to memorialize him. They got rings made with Day's name on them that they stack on top of their wedding rings. They also have a little box with a glass top that holds pictures and mementos of Day, kind of like a little altar to him. And every year, right after Thanksgiving, um, the anniversary of the week he stopped living, they hang ornaments in the shape of suns in their window. They add one more sun each year that he's been gone. If you've experienced a stillbirth or even a late miscarriage and you have a ritual to memorialize your child, we want to hear about it. Go to longestshortesttime.com and tell us about it in the comments for this episode. Thanks today to Jonathan Menhivar for editing. Thanks also to Sean Cole and to everyone in our Facebook Mamas group who sent me resources on stillbirth. You can find a list of them at the blog post for this episode. We have a big, exciting show announcement coming soon. That's going to happen before our next episode, actually. I'll be announcing it in our newsletter first, so go to the website and sign up for that. Today's episode was brought to you with support by MailChimp, the people behind Tiny Letter. Tiny Letter, email for writing home about your tiny people. New mom Liz says she'd write home about her 17-month-old who recently started using the very mature word breasts. Liz was proud until she realized he was also calling her nipples elbows. Support today also comes from diapers.com. Get 20% off your first order at diapers.com or any of their other sites where you can find things like baby blankets, books, and picture frames with the code LONGEST20. That's LONGEST20. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. I'm Hilary Frank, back in two weeks with a new episode of The Longest Shortest Time. 
And as always, if you have a story of a surprising struggle in early parenthood that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated it. this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen.